Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, the boss of the world's biggest media buying firm, Group M, is on the mics today for a whirlwind tour on what the hell is happening in this frenetic world of media audiences and technology, which we know are all colliding like subatomic quarks. The last time we had Christian Jewell on this podcast in 2021, he lit up the industry's neural networks with his helicopter worldview, which included his ambition to drive what he called quality CPMs. It included the likelihood that Group M would advise its broad client portfolio to pull spend from media companies that weren't demonstrably decarbonizing their business and supply chain. That session was also not long after his new Group M ANZ CEO, Amy Buchanan, had joined to make the Antipodean operation a better, tighter, smarter place. Amy is joining Christian today, so stand by. I reckon this will get a little bit more than marginally interesting. Welcome to you both. Christian, um, let's start with the big trends and challenges as you see them for brands, growth, media and audiences. What are the most pressing conversations you're having at the moment with marketers and executive leadership more broadly? And welcome back down under, Christian. I note that you were wearing an Akubra only about 30 seconds ago. You've turned Australian. Good to have you back. It's great to be here. It's been really nice to uh, spend the whole week down and uh, spend time with Amy and the team and meet so many great clients um, and be part of South by Southwest's inaugural trip to uh, Sydney. So thanks for having me. And I, I do love my hat. They gave it to me this morning after attending one of the biggest town halls I've hosted uh, in any market. So it was really, really nice. Yeah, Go Australia. And, and as I understand it, you might have some mug boots as a gift as well. You are turning Australian crazy. I, I've had Ugg boots for some time, but they, they ah. definitely uh, gave me an upgrade once we get the sizing right. So we should talk sort of um, meaty stuff, Christian. What are you seeing globally? There's some big things happening, right? Sure. I mean, I don't even know where to start on it, but let's let's talk generally how we're how our clients are talking to us. You know, there's been a lot of change in the world in the last five years, certainly since we last spoke. And, you know, you've seen things of pandemic, you've seen, you know, cultural shifts, you've seen war, you've seen, you know, inflation, and all of these trends are kind of piling together to, you know, create this moment they're in now, which is really marketers who have increased, you know, heavily into e-commerce and the digital during pandemic, now looking, you know, at themselves and saying, okay, what are we doing? You're seeing the big tech companies kind of, I would say, you know, right-sizing their staff, not necessarily cutting, and they're still seeing growth. But, you know, what does all this mean for modern marketers? How do they think about transformation? How do they justify their place in the boardroom and their budgets when, you know, it's such a top expenditure for big companies in a time when, when everything's being looked at? So I talk a lot to our team people about, you know, our clients are looking for transformation, no matter how they define that. And, and they want marketing to help lead that transformation. So what does that mean for communications, for creativity, for technology? And how do we advise them through that through that transformation? And on that, Christian, so the types of transformations you talk about, they're, they're different by category, by business. What's at the top of the chain there? What does it look like? What are transformations that um, that you're having conversations with that are underway or they're trying to deliver? Well, certainly the understanding of their own customers and how they lead with data and technology and how they create personalized experiences. That's always you know the, one of the first things we're talking about and responsible use of of data. We talked about our ethics data framework before, and those are very top of mind for most. But I think even beyond that, you know, how do they shift the organization, you know, for themselves? How do they think about the value they create? How what kind of media partners do they want to be, you know, uh, partnering with? What is globalization? There's a lot of conversation about global and local and the relationships. Mm. Great being here in Australia and seeing this market and looking, you know, at so many of our top clients that operate from here and run successful businesses, but talking to them from the local side out. Instead of talking, you know, global in, uh, you, you get a different perspective. And I think all of those things come together to think about, you know, how do I run a world-class marketing organization? What do my partnerships look like with my agencies? How do I organize my internal structures around data, tech, media, value, and bring that to bear? So let's get to maybe the core part of your business, which I, I understand is broadening, but um, media investment. Um, what's getting your attention and and that of brands, really, because audiences and people are changing, moving around so much, trying to keep track of it is one thing. But uh, media investment, what's happening at a macro and then down a bit further into how you how you deliver on that? Well, let's talk about the core media market. I think you know, that's at the heart of your question. And obviously, the heart of what Group M does is the 
largest media investment firm in the world. So, you know, we're about 60 billion US in terms of uh, global investment, obviously, you know, in every major market around the world. So, you know, I think when you're looking at clients and you're looking at the industry side, you're saying there's been this incredible inflationary pressure on linear television. Um, what does that mean? You know, how long does that continue to go on where they're essentially paying more for less? And how do we think about audience fragmentation across that and all these new formats that are coming out? And how does that get effectively priced? And all of that, you know, comes down to measurement and how do we think about getting some level of um, universal measurement across these things? And you can look at, you know, MMM or audience or, you know, last time we spoke, we talked about a QCPM and some sort of proxy for how these things come together. But I think clients are generally looking for, you know, where am I going to get my my customer's attention? How do I think about that in a, in a world where increasingly I can transact online with the rise of retail media and commerce and data? And how does that come together? How do I extract maximum value from linear television? And what does that really look like? Which leads you into a lot of, you know, emerging areas around sport and entertainment and events and culture. And all those areas are right for us to explore. Um, you know, I think when you look at the GOAT acquisition we just made, which is really around, you know, social influence marketing and how do we think about that and the rise of TikTok and other platforms that, you know, give such great voice to, to amazing groups of creators. You know, what does that kind of trajectory look like? How do we think about, you know, are, are the big mega platforms like Meta and Google and Amazon? So, you know, it's an exciting place. Uh, ultimately, you know, it's up to us to help our brands connect with their consumers across that wide ecosystem. Just on that, you talked about globalization earlier. Do you see, well, it sounds like very intelligent word, bifurcation, but essentially global media companies, big platforms versus local media companies and sort of micro media companies, if you like, down at a community level. Where are the forces taking you, Christian, in that sort of that split? I mean, all is the answer for us. Yeah, I mean, we right. have to look at that and, and be able to, to layer you know, the brands and think about how we want to connect in an authentic way. And I think that's really what almost all the brands are looking for is authenticity. So how do you have the right local conversation? How do you have the right regional conversations? Then how do you think about, you know, big global launches? And, you know, what do you want to say at each level there? And what's the role of media in each one of those things? And, you know, we're looking for quality, we're looking for authenticity, we're looking for verifiable, you know, results, we're looking for third parties to come in and be able to, to verify the things we're looking at. And we're looking for value. And creativity, new formats. And, you know, what does that mean? You look at, you know, what South by is doing here in Sydney right now. Like, what are the activation opportunities for that? What's going to be different? You know, we sat down with Netflix in the early days and said, okay, you're going to move into advertising. You know, you know, household data, you know, individuals who are watching. Like, what's the opportunity to do something different that hasn't been done yet? And sometimes they take you up on that and sometimes they don't. But um, you've triggered me on something, which is Netflix, which is obviously new to the ad world and probably there was no question it's got your attention. There have been some reports in, in recent weeks uh, of some changes there. It hasn't quite gone like they thought and hoped. Is that your view? Look, they're new to the industry of advertising and they're figuring it out. You know, I think they wanted to get to market quickly. They did a deal with Microsoft at the same time, tried to build their own team. At the heart of it, you know, Netflix is an entertainment company and they're they're based in kind of LA and Hollywood culture. And I think the collision of that with tech and data and kind of big tech, it'll take time to sort out what kind of culture they're going to evolve into. You know, I think with their changes, they're saying, look, we want to, you know, get back to entertainment and get back to kind of the roots of who we are and figure out how we build an ad model through that that works for us. You know, they're all great people. I know, you know, all the different people at Netflix, those who are there and those who have left and very talented and very capable folks. I have every confidence they'll figure it out. I think the industry is saying, give us something different. You know, we're looking for new engagement models for new ways to know who we're speaking to a new way to create offers and promotion um, and new ways to measure and new ways to close all that so that we know the value that, you know, we're getting from our marketing dollars. I think Netflix has a great opportunity to do that. It says Group M, you know, I'm, I'm sure that around the world as you have here, had a dabble in that. Specifically though, when you talk about looking for different models, you is the expectation that Netflix is so different and so innovative that they should and could do something very different to what you're seeing in market? Is that essentially what you're saying? Well, Netflix is a very innovative company altogether. I mean, they've always been willing to, to break the model, try something new, reinvent themselves, tear up the playbook and start over. Um, and I think, you know, in advertising, there's that opportunity. I mean, you look at, you know, basically the largest streaming platform in the world. And like, how do we think about what advertising could be? And how do we think about creating content? How do we think about integrating brands? I think, you know, it's wide open in that sense. You have a totally different distribution model than what we've had through linear television. So what can we do with that? And how do we think about it? That's exciting. 
and I won't labour on this, but one more question. So what would float your boat on a Netflix advertising model? What would you like to see? What's what's good? What does good look like? You know, I'd just like to sit down with them at the table and, and talk through it, see what the options are, and sit down with a couple of our key advertisers and and uh, do a little bit of a, an imagination with them. I take it you're not going to tell me on the mics, Christian, what you really want, which is a fair call. Um, so just one thing before that this local and global tension, this underlying tension isn't there between scale and local how are you re- managing that tension because obviously you know you want efficiencies and global gives you that but if you're down having to deal with lots of smaller local media companies is there a way through that that you can manage that tension of, of efficiency and scale versus local authenticity and kind of get reaching audiences in a relevant way in a local market i don't know that i would i feel that tension paul like between that local and, and global i think if we do our job really well, like I said, it's more of a, a layered effect that we can go through. And I think, you know, one of the greatest strengths of Group M is our global scale. I'm trying not to make this a self-promotion <laughs> interview from you, but I think that's one of the reasons we continue to invest in our local markets and local leaders like Amy and and others is because they have such good local knowledge and they have good relationships with, you know, the publishers here that matter, the partners here that matter, the technology that's here, the local laws and regulations that are here. And our clients count on us to execute at that level. And then be able to ladder it up so that we can execute both globally and locally. And those two things working together, you know, I said earlier, what are the big trends? Like marketers trying to figure out what do we do between local autonomy and global strategy and global product launches and guidelines. That formula that Group M has is a key ingredient to that success. So I think it's kind of the combination of, you know, big global negotiations and partnerships where, you know, we just launched a, a big thing with Google around AI and being one of the first partners into the sandbox to figure out how we're going to bring that to our clients. At the same time, being able to come into a local market and be really innovative in, in journalism or sponsor certain key events or you know any of the myriad of things that, that we do in, in a market itself. You can't say things like Google AI sandbox and not get a question, Christian. What does that look like You know, in, in AI and in, in an early partner? What is the territory there that you're looking at? Like AI is going to transform the whole industry. We know that. You know, Already 50% of our campaigns are touched by AI in some way or another. And you know, probably by the end of next year, I've already said it'll probably be close to 100%. You know, it's up to us to keep looking at the partnerships, understand, you know, what Google is going to provide, how we think about, you know, what that would mean for media planning, for media optimization, for reporting, for analytics. How do we use their cloud-based infrastructure to bring it to our clients? You know, all those things are open in the sandbox for us to take to our clients. And, you know, likewise, we're doing some of the partnerships across the board. It's not an exclusive relationship, but... um you know, we're really excited by by the work that we have done there. And I think we're in the very, very early moments of this um, to see how it plays out. Amy Buchanan, welcome. We're, I want to go to sort of an area uh, globally and locally that's getting a lot of noise at present, which is around market mix modeling and econometrics. What are your respective positions on this? Uh, is it getting momentum? Is it journos like me going, oh, that's interesting, so I'm overweighting? And will it have an increasing influence on channel planning and the investment mix? Look, I think the question that you're really asking is, is measurement increasingly becoming a focus for our clients? And it is. Christian outlined the importance of explaining, measuring and understanding the impact that marketing and media dollars is having on on business and brand growth. And we're seeing that conversation happen increasingly. I think what has shifted and what really interests me is that it's moved beyond a just a channel play. And I think the conversations that we're having around how do we optimize across the portfolio, how do we optimize across region, how do we optimize across audiences and channels. And I think the way or the tension that we're trying to resolve in that conversation is not just looking at the bottom of funnel performance metrics, which has increasingly been how models are built into full funnel models, which look at brand consideration all the way through to performance. And we're having a lot of rich discussions in understanding the different impact that channels and touch points have on that customer journey and at where each brand is operating within that. Mm. So does that mean econometrics is the solution, Amy, for this, or is there some other stuff happening in and around it? We're building a lot of like full funnel models, so looking much more through the line, not just at most of the traditional econometric models were built on quite short-term metrics, and I think what we're seeing increasingly is that's not enough to understand the longer-term brand impact that some of the work that we're doing with consumers in. And so the way that we're building those models and the variables that we're taking in, the data sets we're looking at has shifted, and I think we are seeing and hearing quite a lot of noise in market around that. Is market mix modeling then a part of the solution? Different Don't know title, yet. different title. I, I mean, right. market mix model, econometric model, full funnel model, they're all 
derivatives of each other, really. But it's moving. Something that is evolving. That's the point, I guess. Evolving. I think it has yeah. to do for where we're headed. We can't continue just to look at the short-term metrics of campaigns. Yeah, and is that understanding, do you think, through marketers and, and client side, are they they're appreciating that sort of shift? Totally. I think that's the conversation we're having. I'd say with our top 15 clients, they're either having that with us, we're having that with them, or that conversation is happening throughout their business. Christian, do you align with your Antipodean boss? Look, I would just say, I think what Amy's you know, leading out is exactly right. We have to blend how we measure across all these different channels, short term and the long term. I think that you know how we build those models in many cases is, is quite custom on a client-by-client basis, depending on the level of access they have to their data, the types of media that they're buying. Um, but everybody is looking at you know, how do we think about sort of full funnel measurement and how do I think about, you know, all the way through to loyalty and everything else you can do. Mm-hmm. We're working with, you know, one large customer right now. And, you know, there's so many different layers of customer data that they have. And, you know, we're working to kind of unify that so that we can really understand the impact of not just advertising, but, you know, loyalty and relationship marketing. And how do we pull that together across all of WPP so that we mm-hmm. can present them sort of these lifetime value models. And, you know, marketers have to understand that right now. I talked earlier about, you know, kind of marketers earning their place in the boardroom, justifying these these massive budgets to their CEOs, you know, it all comes down to measurement. And so, you know, everything's on the table. Um, and in a world that's rapidly changing, and I'm sure you're going to ask about the big tech platforms at some point, like we have to Probably. be really prepared to think about, you know, how are the privacy regulations shifting? What does that mean for data? What does that mean for, you know, kind of the, the elements of measurement that we've honed in on to prove effectiveness? Mm. So, you know, we have to kind of stay level-footed and understand that the regulations are probably going to shift, government's going to shift, and what are the signals for strength, uh, you know, or success. So you know, It's super it's complex, very, though, isn't complex it? complex math. Yeah, yeah. And to your point, it's complex in that it's not just about, at the moment, uh, well, it's not just about media channel. I had a conversation mm. with a CMO at a, at a big bank here in Australia, and what they were trying to do is get beyond channel mix to how does their customer experience and MarTech uh, activities influence the results that are coming through? What's contributing to it? Now, that gets really, really like, how do you solve for that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like you said, I mean, it's complex math and you're trying to pick up signals. In some cases, they're very discreet. You know, that's easier to do. In some cases, they're very vague and trying to create proxies for what those signals are going to be and proxies for measurement and then importing them into data models so that you can do forecasts and a budget shift on a global basis based upon propensity for whatever your KPI is going to be. That's the most exciting part of our business, but it's also probably the most dynamic. And I think, you know, where we're constantly hiring talent and looking for folks is, you know, in these particular areas, it's essence was near and dear to my heart. It's where I came out of. I always said they were analytics, measurement, and scientific business that lent itself to the media practice. And that's really true. That idea of the scientific method and hypotheses and testing, it becomes so important in our industry. Are you close to something that will be will get you to there, Christian? Are you look where are you at with that? And that's just meaning that you need to open your strategic cupboard and tell me everything, basically. I mean, I definitely have the golden answer on a tablet. Yeah. Come out. I'm just, it'll be next week, not today. Next week, okay. I have to wait. I mean, on that sort of broader area beyond media channel to you know trying to understand how a customer experience uh, has an influence on business impact and results. Are you having those sort of conversations and do you have any thoughts on how that may play out? Yeah, I think the example you gave, if I'm if I'm reading between the lines with the big bank, is probably one of ours. I could be wrong, but I'd, yeah, I'd I'm not gonna I'm not even I'm gonna do a Christian and an Amy and not be drawn. That's not like you, Paul. I think look, we are, we're doing a lot of work in understanding the different touch points. Christian talked a bit about the lifetime value. That's definitely a part of the conversation we're having with clients. We've built big models over many, many years for quite a few of our clients, but we also work with other clients where they have their own in-house model or they work with a third party. For us, it's about how we use the data to drive an improved result and outcome for our client. The same is happening in another area, which is around, it's still measurement um, to Christian's sort of big sort of macro point. Same goes for attention and engagement. Yep. Um, there's debate in some industry circles about these metrics bumping reach and frequency in a media context, at least, as the prevailing influence in audience and media planning uh, and buying. We had Uber's uh, APAC CMO in a story earlier this week saying pretty much uh, that, that he's moving to attention uh, metrics, Andy Morley, um, over for reach and frequency. What are your respective positions on this? And I'll defer to whoever talks first, Christian or Amy, local, global, um, I'm easy. I go back to what I said earlier. 
Uber's looking at attention metrics. Other people have looked at different metrics throughout time. Like we're just going to have to look at all of them. I mean, and every metric is going to be a proxy for something else until we can get to, you know, a true universal measurement element. And we know cookies are changing. We know data is changing. Everybody's looking for some sort of proxy for success. And, you know, we work with Uber and we work with them here in APAC and we're working with them on what that attention metric might be. But it's not going to be just that. I mean, that's something almost in a way to look at and say, okay, you know, if we want to sell against attention, let's counter that with viewability or reach or conversions or, you know, brand lift points or any of the other things that we're going to look at through there to kind of create a full picture of measurement. And then you can look at sort of success and say, okay, this has been verified in three or four different ways. Yeah, that's something we're actually going to hone in on as sort of our unique if you will. And I think for a lot of customers, it's interesting. I mean, we've worked with a lot of brands who they believe they find a secret metric or a secret sort of, you know, we talked about the QCPM. I mean, the Q could really be just uh, a, a variable. And, you know, the goal is sort of, can you pick three or four different success points in your campaigns to create your variable and then optimize against that variable? And when that's your variable and you kind of know, then you can find undervalued points of media that help drive success in that particular variable that maybe your competitors can't find. You know, that's what great media agencies do. They help you sort of define a success metric that might take from that entire ecosystem and say, okay, I can find value in the media world to help me drive success against that. And I know that is my best proxy for brand lift or for sales or for whatever I'm trying to to go against. So, you know, I wouldn't get hung up on, you know, what Uber's is or what another brand's is, but I think every client's got to go out there and find what their variable is and what's going to go against that. So is reach and frequency a stale or an, an anachronistic sort of measurement for today? No. I mean, it's still there. It's still really important. There's still, you know, a baseline of measurement that we've all become very comfortable with. And you can look at it and, you know, ultimately, you know, you are in a reach game. I think we're beyond mass media at this point. I think when you want to get into personalization and how do you really connect with consumers, you know, it's that full layered effect that I was talking about. But certainly when you look at big cultural moments in the site. We, we want to look at reach and we want to look at frequency and try and figure out you know, what those optimal mixes are. So Amy, to Christian's point, so attention is getting a lot of attention. And so what's your position on that in terms of, okay, it might be a variable, but at the moment it's a talkability variable. Lots of people are talking about it. Where does it fit in that all those, the mix for you? Because And there's a lot of, clearly a lot of conversation in the Australian market about this in the last couple of years. Yeah, look, it's one vehicle that we're using to help refine our approach, but I don't think it's the only import we're using to to make decisions on as Christian outlined. I think in the instance of Uber, they're a brand that's found great success in activating in big cultural moments like the Australian Open. Attention gives us a great proxy to understanding where consumers are leaning into around those cultural moments, and so it works for them. I think it's not going to be the be-all, end-all for every client, but for them, they've got a formula that is really delivering on building their brand locally in this market in a very relevant way, and attention's a great data to give us that insight. And so when Christian talks about sort of finding the new universal measurement, it sounds like it actually, we won't get there. It'll be it'll be almost custom depending on the category and client you're in then, if that's the case. Can we get to some you know, we had attempt, what, a few years back on cross-media measurement um, out of the UK and out of the World Federation of Advertisers in, in Brussels. That was sort of a big attempt to try and sort of unify everything. Can we get to a unified metric? My personal opinion is that that it will be defined by clients' objectives and not every client has the same objective for every campaign. So it will require different inputs and different outputs to understand that. Mm. Christian, you know, the sort of cross-media measurement, it's sort of gone a little slowed down a bit, the enthusiasm, based on what I hear when read out of the UK uh, trial, at least. Oh, I don't think it's slowed down. I think clients are still super interested in it. I think it's getting more difficult. You know, we're looking at different solutions for that. But I think what Amy said is exactly right. I mean, customers or brands are figuring out what their custom measurement technique is going to be, and then they're going out and trying to figure that out. Maybe they're realizing the measurement is every bit as important as negotiation or rates. And that, you know, they're not being quite as public about what their secret sauce is for measurement. Mm. Um, so without naming any names, what is, have you seen some interesting scenarios and models there of how a custom measurement um, to business impact, what it looks like, an example? I mean it. I think this is an area where customers are really, you know, spending a lot of proprietary 
strategy and, and thought capital. And, you know, I'd be respectful of that. And I think that every customer out there is trying to figure out what their, what their unique sauce is going to be in the space. So I wouldn't be at liberty right now to discuss specific examples or, you know, tell you their formulas for that. I think in generality, I, I would say exactly what I've kind of already stated, which is simply they're looking at everything. They're trying to find what their unique definition of success is going to be and then trying to find value in the media ecosystem to drive that. And there's a variety of different tools and techniques and partners and platforms to do that with. So the implications here, though, say for the media supply chain and even technology vendors is if it's going to be moving around and it's going to be super customized to the category or the business, a business, that makes it really difficult for others to sort of, you can't have as a supplier, you know, can you have 35, 40 different ways you go to market because that's going to work for a individual client? I might ask you that one, Amy, because that, again, gets really complex. How do you deal with that? How does a supply chain deal with that? Well, let me just, it, before we jump to Amy, let me just clarify. I'm not talking about, you know, suppliers coming in with one-off measurement techniques. I'm talking about how do we put those technologies and capabilities together in a global mosaic to meet what the custom criteria for success might be at a client level. So the customer... The brands are going to sit and say, okay, this is what I'm going to optimize against. This is what my targets are going to be. And they spend a lot of time crafting that and thinking about what those might be. Yeah. Then there's a whole industry body full of techniques and capabilities and tools that I wouldn't expect to be customized. Maybe for you know very, very large advertisers where it might make sense, they might do something. But you really want standardization at the industry level so that you can get some sort of parity around measurement and, and media. So just want to make sure that yeah no yeah. fair call yeah, yeah couldn't agree more so Amy you're t- you've got a, a view on that oh I was going to say something similar not as articulate but I was gonna, I was basically going to say I don't think it's a case of forty five different models um, mm. and that's not what we're running I think we're looking at different variables within within an approach to understand the the drivers and levers. Christian, in our last conversation a couple of years ago, you floated some pretty interesting and and thought-provoking initiatives, actually, at Group M. Can we get an update, really, on on where you're at now with some of them? Let's start with the quality CPM. You said on the mics the other year that Group M will, quote, absolutely recommend brands pull spend from publishers that don't demonstrably decarbonise. So start with that one. How has it evolved? I think we've done a really good job of of evolving you know, our responsible investment framework and looking at data ethics and you know, their carbon pledge and, you know, what they're trying to do to, you know, continue to make advertising more valuable for the world. And I think that we have had, you know, some good success of talking to the supply side and looking at, you know, our clients in terms of their carbon footprints for their media plans and giving them options if they choose to reduce that or options if they choose to, you know, move money that says, okay, this is how you can reduce your carbon footprint. I think that's really important. Amy can give you some examples of all the different partners that we've measured here in, in just this market alone, but we're doing it around the world. We're going to go through and say, you know, if this is something that's important to you, and it's always, I would always say that it's, it's always, if this is important to you as a brain, you know, it's their money. All we do is advise. So, you know, what we can do is give the advice at this point, you know, we're definitely the leading holding company in terms of measuring carbon footprint, looking at the supply side and giving customers options, you know, to move that money. And many of them have taken us up on that and we have moved money. Well, I was going to ask, so, you know, you say it is up to the individual business to decide the quantum, uh, how many are moving on that, Christian, in some way? We have a significant amount of customers that are looking at that. And you're seeing, you know, RFPs coming through right now where customers are asking, you know, what's the carbon footprint of that plan? Can you help us look at how we manage that? How scientific is your method? What, you know, methodologies are you actually signing up to? How verifiable is this? So it's, you know, it's a core part of our business. Um, I think it's really important that you know, I think like to think we led the industry in a lot of these a lot of these areas, and you know we're continuing to do it. And our, and our partners are really leaning in. I mean, you know, all the way to Google and Amazon and and the big tech companies are coming to us. Going, you you've shown real leadership in this space. What can we do to help? What can we do, you know, to, to lend our voice to this to say, you know, th- that we care as well, and that you know we've made big pledges to sustainability. And how do we get our approach, you know, melded into the into the the uh, general methodology? In a media context with your clients, are we talking 30, 40%? What would be the range that are in some way moving on this? Not necessarily 100%, right? We're, you know, we're, we're going to be vigilant, but how many are, are dabbling at least, Christian? I mean, I would say almost every one of our clients are at least asking the questions right now. And, you know, we're really happy with that number. How many are acting on it? Yeah, look, I'm massively passionate about this. I think, as Christian says, there's a different response from every advertiser, and our job is to advise. Having said that, we've got 
we've turned on our digital sustainability initiative locally onto 45 clients. Uh, we've measured 1.6 billion impressions, 930 metric ton of carbon. We've run many tests on reduction. You know, I think I spoke to you last time. We one of the tests we did, we reduced the emissions by 40% by reducing the file sizes, looking at the creative. We're rolling that practice out. And by and large, clients want to go on that journey. And I think it is a journey. I think getting to an end state is what we're all focused on, but there's a lot of steps to understand the impact that we're having, the variables that drive that impact, how we drive reduction and the conversations that need to happen along the way to make that happen. So we haven't talked about it for a while, Amy. What are the new learnings in some of the stuff you've been doing? What's popped up or emerged? You go, oh, right, so we take it on. Is there anything new there? Yeah, look, I think the, the low-hanging fruit is where where there's activity that I think doesn't drive performance high performance that has high emissions. So understanding that, removing that out of the ecosystem, good for business, good for the environment should happen. The the big area of development that we're doing quite a bit of work on at the moment is understanding the creative layering and impact that the file size of how we deliver ads in their resolution, how that impacts the environment, but also what point is the point a consumer even notices Mm. And if we could reduce the loads or the file sizes of some of the campaigns that we're running, would that have a monumental impact on the brand or just a monumental impact on the environment? And, yeah, I think, yeah. and we're running tests. We're doing that very responsibly, you know, and I think it, it, it is, it's a conversation we need to have and I haven't had any client not want to have that. And I think what you've gone to is are you, are you moving money, are you doing these things? Well, I, I don't think that's the first or the second step. I think the first or the second step is measuring, understanding, optimising, testing and sharing those learnings. And we've got a lot of partners that we're deep in conversation with on how they can improve their ecosystem, on how they can do these tests with us. And I'm I'm really encouraged and inspired by that. And so just on that file size, I mean, essentially what you're talking about there is how how does that appear to our eyes? So visually, for instance, is, is it a lower quality? Yeah. Yes, do you really? notice? Exactly, yeah. And is it a 10, 20, 30%? All of that has an impact, but where's it sitting? Well, the tests we ran for one client, we took two pieces of creative, ran exactly the same activity, just changed the way that we layered the file, the fonts, everything else, 40% reduction in emissions. Mm. And what and the quality was um, no no difference marginal right no difference okay. yeah interesting Christian the other thing that we we talked about a couple of years ago well it was you're well quoted on this globally is Group M's becoming a software company rather than a media agency you know from eighteen months two years on um, what's happened there how's that evolved I have to thank you I think that was a comment that I didn't mean to be quite as um, prolific as it became but that that followed oh, me sorry. around the world so no you're not famous, at all I mean. Paul. Um, but yes, well, he is. That's why people take notice. No, That's what happened. <laughs> Look, I'm really happy. I said that when I took the job. I said that, you know, when I laid out the architect for the transformation that Group M was going to go through. And I, I think we've seen our competitors, you know, kind of race to follow it to say, you know, we're going to align software at the bottom of our company that's going to, you know, kind of dictate the way that we work. And, you know, whether that's, you know, acquired software, whether that's things that they built in house, you know, they've all sort of aligned what they consider their marketing automation suites, you know, around a software. And I think we've already launched Choreograph. We've been, you know, uh, a leader in that space. And we can look at now how software runs our overall organization in a really powerful way. And that aligns behaviors, it aligns quality, it aligns, you know, the way we look at inventory measurement, the way we can, um, you know, run the core business. And I think that's really exciting for a lot of us. It says, okay, now we can that we've done that, we can start thinking like a software company and say, okay, if we're at release 4.0, let's get everybody to show them a preview of what 5.0 is going to come, you know, come about. And then let's start doing our dot releases on the way there. And so we can get to 4.1 and we can roll that out globally. And then we can get to 4.2 and roll that out globally. And I think that's so, an exciting place for us to be. Yeah. And so for the audience that may not know what Choreograph is, for instance, give us, uh, you know, here's the chance for the plug. But what have you done with, with Choreograph? What is that for someone who doesn't know Group M's business or is not a client? Well, Choreograph is actually a, it's the combination of all the WPP data and technology people and assets within the organization. So we've created, you know, the company within that, which has, you know, been different parts of the company that have come together over the last 10 plus years, I would say. And it really is aligning everything we think about audience and activation and reporting and optimization so that you can access that you know, on our agencies and with our clients to come through and really simplify the way that you work and 
and use the technology to improve your marketing. And that sits within Group M? It does sit within Group M, yeah. Mm. Amy, how's that, how's that applied in this market, for instance? The bigger focus for us in the sort of short to medium term has been building out the Nexus capability, which is really about bringing all of our digital performance and activation capability into a single entity um, that services our clients with you know great expertise, consistency, and best practice. And that's uh, a shared resource amongst your, your agency brand, is it, Amy? Yeah, but embedded into the agency so that it's servicing okay. our clients, but consistency and practice technology and ways of working, which has been, I think, an awesome journey. We've brought all of the different entities into that one umbrella, which is working well. And the final piece, which I think you referenced, is the launch of Acceleration here locally, which has had a lot of success under the leadership of Tom Braybrook and being able to get that amazing talent into our building. Um, which is a MarTech practice or beyond? Am I- MarTech practice, yeah, particularly mm. on, the, on the Google stack. And really building out that capability for our clients, which we're getting a lot of, a lot of focus on. And for an untrained or a simple person like myself, when you have a MarTech practice inside a what is it has traditionally been a media buying firm versus a big consulting firm or a tech vendor who's is doing a bunch of stuff, how does Group M bring something to MarTech when it's you know it's kind of outside the old world remit of a media agency? I think it's about helping clients deploy their technology for the best outcome when it, where it relates to their media. I don't think it's that far apart right. from what we do. Um, okay. And if you look at the work that Tom and the team are doing, it's very closely relating to a lot of the skill sets that we have in this building. I think potentially when you think back maybe 20 years ago, we didn't have that capability. But if you think about where our spend of our clients is and the activity and work that we're doing, it is quite closely aligned. And look, we are hiring and building around him, but it's his focus has been definitely utilising the capability under the hood as it stands. So a use case would be where you've got a client who has sort of a big customer database, can communicate through their own assets to those customers, but also they need to augment and amplify that outside their owned assets. You're plugging in into the to the media environment to do that. Is that am I off? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's definitely part of it. Um, part of it also might be consulting on uh, data and tech maturity with them. It might be aligning, having thinking about privacy and how we're working within new privacy construct for them right. in, in a modern world. Um, there's three or four core services that we're focused on, such as those that will expand out over time. Well, you did mention privacy, so I yeah, do have to ask Christian about that. Uh, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> there is, Christian, there is a lot of regulatory and government attention on the big tech platforms globally, certainly in the US at the moment. The Department of Justice has got a juicy one going on at the moment. Is this different this time? Uh, is the ground shifting or will it end up kind of more of the same in where we've been in the last three, four, five, six years with lots of sort of um, talk, but not necessarily, it's, it doesn't, not much changes? Well, I think. Look, the government's been serious about this for a long time. We've seen things in Europe, we've seen things in the States, we've seen things in particular states like California. Uh, we've seen things here in Australia. So, you know, I wouldn't say that it's business as usual um, in as much that, you know, I think the government's trying to understand the implications for privacy, the implications for safety. I mean, I think as we protect the youth and, you know, people in the space that are spending so much time online, you just, you can't argue with the amount of time spent online right now and protecting folks. And, you know, if you look at, the claims of interference in elections and what's happening around the world with with wars and the communications around this. I mean, it's a it is a, a safety issue. It is a government issue, and you know I think they're going to continually push into this area to say, what are you doing? How do we understand it? How do we keep people safe? How do we make sure that you know you're operating in, in the best interests of humanity? To tell you the truth, and so I mm-hmm. think you know I think our big tech companies have become pretty comfortable talking to government and understanding their role in this. And trying to, to work with them. And I think, you know, all of the big tech companies come out and said, you know, we need regulation. We need to know what the rules are. We need to understand, you know, how to work within the boundaries of what society wants us to do and how to make this work. And, you know, I think that's good. I think it's good for us on all the things we've talked about today, you know, better ways of understanding measurement, better ways of understanding brand safety, better ways of understanding effectiveness altogether and creating opportunities then for messaging and creativity and personalization that deliver the value people want from advertising. Does it change radically how you do what you do today for Group M, for instance? I mean, you, know, you think about targeting, you think about data and data sharing. 
I know there's there's ways to solve for it, but does it change essentially the practices that you have now? Well, we didn't go out and spend billions of dollars on cookie-based solutions or PII data that some of our competitors have done. So I think you know we've taken a future-facing view towards this to say you know, we're going to look at things that are you know privacy compliant in the most likely scenarios where cookies are going to go away, where you know we have to look at alternatives for that and proxies um, to be able to do that. So it doesn't change you know today, but I don't think you know the government hasn't legislated on this yet either. So you mm. mentioned Washington and DOJ. You know, those businesses go on, but, you know, some of them are sitting on a razor's edge of, you know, whether they're going to be compliant or not, depending on what, what happens. So I feel good about the position Group M and WPP is in, but I think it will definitely have ramifications for the industry. Amy, privacy here, does, uh, how are you adjusting, preparing for it? Is the business here, re, really, re look at what it does, how it does it, or again, are you future fit? I think Christian, what Christian just outlined in terms of a privacy compliant, non-cookie-based solution has been our focus. Um, we've been knowing with the Privacy Act and ACCC inquiry underway locally that the reliance on cookie-based ID data is not going to be effective in the future uh, and have been designing around that. So I feel good about where we are. I think if you'd asked me two years ago, I was probably sitting here going, how are we going to navigate this? But I think the work that's happened both globally and locally set us up to be in a really good position for that. Christian, first, there's much wrestling across the industry at large uh, on the post-pandemic work regimes and work from home. We've seen a lot of discussion here about you know companies, well, not discussion, um, moves by companies to sort of really push people back into the offices and changing up what happened through the pandemic. Is the pendulum swinging? How do you see this playing out? Look, it's, it's for us, I believe that um, a lot of what clients hire and a lot of our people come to work in advertising is about the culture and about the opportunity to learn from one another. Um, it's about the collaboration that's created. I also think that through pandemic and the technology that everybody's been able to adopt so quickly, that it's provided new access for people that you know, weren't able to come into the workforce and do other things. So I think for me, it's, it's an and, it's not an or. I don't know where the pendulum is necessarily. I, I certainly don't see us mandating a five-day-a-week return to office. Um, I think, you know, we've changed our footprint. We've changed the way we collaborate across our campuses. But I do believe that we need to be in the office. I believe we probably need to be in the office more than we are right now. And I think that creates opportunity for learning, for collaboration, for quality control, to be with our clients. I mean, I've had a, an amazing week here in Sydney and met so many clients face-to-face here in our own offices, a town hall this morning with, you know, hundreds of people. And, you know, I was, I was telling them, like, one of their funniest jokes was probably about the hat they gave me, you know, at the end of the event, but to be able to see it and feel it and see people laugh mm -hmm. and look them in the eyes. It's a powerful thing for everybody. Um, and I want everybody to have that opportunity. So I think, you know, we have to look at the balance of how do we create opportunity for folks on remote when they need it and, you know, supporting their families. And I live in San Francisco and for me, being able to work remotely has been a real gift during this time period. So, you know, my primary office is New York. I travel around the world. But when I'm there, I've got the technology to be able to connect and, and work as I need to work. And we need to be able to embrace those sort of hybrid solutions like that that allow our workforce to be effective. But we also need to get people back in and, and collaborate and learn and be together. What's a good number for you, Christian, if you say you'd like um, your people to be in the office more than they are now? Do you have a mandate now? Yeah, look, I, I'd like to see people in the office three days a week. I would, not the minimum. And I think from there, we can look at what works. And I'd like it to become such a great environment for collaboration and learning and, and client interactions that, you know, people show up five days a week, you know, and it works for them. Mostly I want to meet our employees in the way that it works for them. And I want our offices to be such a place that you want to be here, that everything works well, that the collaboration is in place. Um, I mean, I love coming to the office. I love having a cup of coffee with my coworkers. I love taking a minute and walking around downtown and feeling the energy of it. Like mm. people need to see that. We have a lot of employees. I mean, there's 43,000 people at Group M. Think about how many employees we've hired over the, you know, previous years that maybe have never been in an office and never had that opportunity to collaborate with their coworkers or feel that energy. So as many people as we can bring into that, I think is great. Same time, I want to be flexible and I want to give people the opportunity to join this industry if an office doesn't work for them. So I don't have a mandate. Um, mm. I don't think we're in that place, but in my, in my sense of, you know, what I feel, I think it's, you know, a few days a week probably works and for some it won't. Um, and for some it'll be more. Well, you're just ripping MI3's global uh, in-office policy, Christian, because ours is three days as well. So, look, we're aligned on that. But the, the thing that's the challenge here, which is interesting, particularly with younger talent, is what they think they may need versus or what they want versus what they need. There can be a disconnect there, right? Because your point, um, that bounce off, understanding, absorbing how other teams, their senior management operate, all that sort of all feeds off. Sometimes, though, they don't necessarily 
necessarily believe that's a good thing. Is that a challenge for you or is it just um, me making something really interesting up? I think the thing that people need to understand this company is we're here to serve our clients and we're here to deliver great work. And it's our job to show them how to do that as leaders. And I think we do that best when we're in person. I think we can you know, demonstrate that effectiveness and we show that. So, you know, I stand by collaboration and being around other leaders and learning from folks and seeing your clients face to face and having that culture experience is the best way to learn that. You know, I see some of our competitors going out and issuing mandates and just blanket proclamations that, you know, this may be able to be in the office at this. I think it's different depending on who you are and what your discipline is and, you know, where you want to be and what your market looks like. And I don't, this top-down edict isn't something that I would really want to do. And I think we want to be responsible to our shareholders about our footprint and our real estate. And, you know, we just sat here and talked about sustainability and commuting and safety and all of these types of things get wrapped into that. But if you're in a practice that works for you to work more remotely, that might be the right answer for you. But if you're in a client-facing role and you need to be in the office and you're in the middle of a pitch or delivering great ideas, you might need to be in the office, you know, more. We have people that, you know, work for, for long stretches in the office and that's their, their collaboration space. So I don't really understand how people are making sort of these overall edicts that just apply to everybody. You know, I do respect for everybody who's who's doing it that way. But, you know, for us, I think, you know, it's going to be more of a, a flexible approach. The Australian business, how would you mark its progress? It's been a couple of years. You hired Amy. And where's ANZ in the trajectory? How are you feeling about it? I feel great about the Australian business. Um, I think Amy's done a fabulous job. I think, you know, it's been a, a remarkable few years for us here in the marketplace. You know, we've grown our sales significantly. We've won Unilever recently. You know, we retained the Uber business here at APAC. We retained the Mitsubishi business. Um, we retained the Nike business. Like, you know, and there's a lot of, of growth in, in the existing clients we've had. They've employed new models. They've embraced Nexus and Choreograph and how we think about that. There's a lot of new leadership in the marketplace. And I think they've really rejuvenated the brand. And I've just, on a personal note, loved meeting the clients while I've been down here. And you can just feel the passion between the agencies and and the clients and the mutual respect that they have. And it's a, I, I told someone this morning, I met with the young leaders yesterday morning for breakfast. And I said, I think Amy may have the best job in the company. She works in a mature scaled market and has amazing clients and is, is delivering amazing product, you know, for, um, for me to be able to say that I think is a, is a resounding. Yeah, well, that's, that's a bit higher than a B that's higher than a B plus then Christian. Yeah. Yeah, a bit high. <laughs> a bit high. There's always hey, more to gotta, do, though. Always more to yeah, do. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the best thing from a boss, isn't it? Great, but more, please. Amy, just on that work from um, home stuff, how are you grappling with that? Uh, look, I'm uh, so aligned with Christian on that. I don't think it's a mandate. I said right from the beginning that that wasn't the right way for me, and we undertook a huge program of work. First thing I did when I started was a program called Strive, which was really around what the future of work looks like coming out of the pandemic. And what we came up with is what you've just articulated. You know, culture happens better in person. There's nothing better than turning around, having a conversation. You learn more sitting next to your boss, hearing how they tackle something well or not well. But we need to define what those cultural moments that matter look like for our people because they've changed. And I think that was probably a lot of the mistake that people made is trying to just go back to what it was or trying to keep it as it was during the pandemic. And our view is let's define it, let's make it clear for our people that this is when we want them in, and let's also understand what's important for them. So we ended up with me flex, team flex, and the cultural moments that matter, and everyone in the entire business signed up to those three things. I want to put my kids to bed at night. You know, I leave at a certain time to do that. That's what's important to me. But we work in a business and I need to ebb and flow with that as the business needs. And I think in being transparent and giving people their own voice in that at a team level, at a at an individual level and at a business level, we avoided some of the need to mandate. So you don't have a mandate, right? No mandate. No. But so people what, are in what, an average of three days a week. I was going to say, what's the organic land on that then? So it's three days. Yeah. Yeah. And that will continue then. You see, basically, the more, would you like to see them more by, by choice? You'd like to see them in more, or is that a good mix for you? I think we spend a lot of time on days and trying to get to a magic number. For me, mm. flexibility is not about days. Like sometimes I have an 8 a.m. and I do it at home because trying to get two small children out the door and be dressed with my hair straightened for 8 a.m. is a challenge some mornings. But I'm, I then come in after that call. And so that's flexibility for me. So I think it's more, for me, it's less about the days and it's about defining what the business need is and try and balance that with the individual desire. 
Christian gave you a bit more than a, a B plus, and I know that this is dangerous territory for me because um, I could be dancing around the fire with you. But how would you assess how the business has gone since you've joined? I'm really proud of what we've done. Like it, it wasn't, it was a big job to undertake the transformation that's been happening in this business for the last two or three years. Christian's given us a great blueprint. I'm hugely passionate about the vision that he's laid out for the business and it's what brought me here and it's what I think brought a lot of people in. I think he's outlined the wind and wins and the success. I think, you, you know, I've said to you before, Paul, I'm never happy with where we're at. Like mm. uh, there's no complacency here. I I don't think that, that we're ever done and we need to continue to agitate and we need to continue to improve and show up well for our clients. So I'll never be sitting here going I'm fully satisfied, but I think we've done a lot of good things in this business and I'm really proud of the team for the work that they've done to get to where we are today. Talent and capabilities, is it changing what, what the sort of people you need to hire, the people that you need, where the business is going? How radically is that changing, Amy? It's radically changing in that we need more data scientists, more analysts, more people who are digital natives. I don't think any of those things are new, but it's mm. almost it almost is a kind of core requirement as we move forward that you need some of those capabilities in your in your toolkit. Um, and there's you know obviously a big focus on that. I think the other piece to just to, that we're spending a lot of time on is the right attitude. And do you want to come in and be part of a business that shows up well for our clients, that wants to reinvent what we do, that isn't complacent, that is agitating for change and wants to be part of building something? And I spend a lot of time looking at those things as much as I do the capabilities. Mm. Attitude every time for me is a big part of the criteria that I'm well, I think it's a great point to leave and come back and talk about in another conversation because what I hear across the industry is that, that that's a real struggle for many lead, business leaders is attitude, but we'll stop it there because that's another three hours. Amy Buchanan, thanks for the conversation and I guess go and reinvent. And thanks for joining, Christian. Safe travels. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate your time. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.